Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com what's it like to have the nation's eyes upon you and international media grooming you not to mention delicate diplomatic relations hanging on your every word. Well, today we'll find out as Australia's most senior woman in government gets personal. Feminism, by definition, is the belief that men and women should have equal rights and opportunities. Feminism is about equality, isn't it? It's about men and women having the same opportunities in life. If that does not suit you, then get out. been a lot of talk recently about whether our country is ready for women leaders. It takes courage and strength to be empathetic. Smashing the glass ceiling yet again. Not now, not ever. I moved on her like a bitch. I just don't think there's a place for sexism in our politics. Nobody respects women more than Donald Trump. This has to stop. Welcome to Broad Talk, the podcast about women, power and the wayward world. I'm Virginia Hausiger. As a broadcast journalist over the past few decades, I've interviewed hundreds of people across Australia and around the world. All sorts of people from prime ministers to power moguls, CEOs to celebrities, villains to victors. But the one thing that's never stopped fascinating me is leadership. What is it that makes some people in a crowd stand out and step up? Well, that's what we're going to explore in the first series of Broad Talk. We'll take a deep dive into new leadership. I want to know if we're moving towards a more feminised style of leadership, the sort of leadership that's emerged during the global coronavirus pandemic as a more successful and sustainable alternative to authoritarian strongman rule. We'll find out what sets these women apart from their male counterparts and take a look at the barriers that women face in leadership positions. In intimate discussions, I'll be asking some prominent leaders what they think about their own leadership style and how they smashed through some of their toughest challenges against all the odds. Like the sound of that? Well, then join me. Hit subscribe on whatever pod platform you're listening on and make sure you don't miss an episode. And while you're at it, connect with us on social media. We love to hear your thoughts, suggestions and comments. You can find us on Facebook at Broad Talk, or one word. Today we're taking a look at leadership in government and we're doing it with, well, currently the most qualified woman in the country to talk on the subject. Senator Maurice Payne is perhaps one of our more elusive, if not intriguing, political leaders. As Australia's Minister for Foreign Affairs since 2018, she's avoided the personal media scrutiny her predecessor, Julie Bishop, received. And as Minister for Women, well, she's been particularly low-key. I wanted to hear more about who she really is, why she does what she does, and what she thinks about the role and responsibility of women in leadership. Marie 
Therese, welcome to Broad Talk. Thank you so much for giving us the time, particularly at such a busy time for you. Thanks, Virginia. Looking forward to it. You've uh, just recently given a, a very powerful speech at ANU, the Security College, which got a lot of media coverage. And I just want to start off by asking you, not about that speech in which you, you uh, really laid down the, the law, but what it's like afterwards. So you give a powerful speech, a big, strong message to uh, uh, to our foreign community um, with messages to Russia, to the US. When it's over, you go home, what's it like? Do you just sort of sit for a moment and think about, you know, gosh, the fallout will start any moment <laughs> if it hasn't already? Or, or do you go to bed and have a, have a good night's sleep? What's it like for you? I think that's an interesting question because uh, at the moment uh, there is so much uh, going on uh, and uh, in a, uh, a circumstance like that, uh, sometimes I have to come back to Parliament and do some media, which is what happened in uh, in this context. So the uh, the issues keep uh, rolling for a while. A couple of interviews uh, in that uh, in that context. Uh, ultimately, once uh, you get home, of course, in Canberra it's not home home. Uh, so mm. uh, it's uh, it's wherever you happen to stay, however you share, have uh, whatever shared arrangements you have. I share a house with four other parliamentary colleagues uh, and uh, that can be fabulous and uh, occasionally um, <laughs> challenging. Annoying. Um, <laughs> never <laughs> annoying, but occasionally challenging. Um, and in this context, you know, it's a chance to uh, actually uh, just chat about something else for a little bit. Uh, and uh, and I think uh, on the occasion of uh, of this speech, uh, it involved uh, reheating some uh, some takeaway and sharing that with a couple mm-hmm. of my housemates and uh, and talking about something else. But the one thing I always do at the end of the day uh, when I'm in Canberra, as often as I possibly can, uh, is to compare notes uh, with my partner Stuart, who, as um, many would know, is also a uh, parliamentarian, also a minister. Mm. Uh, and between us, we can have some uh, pretty strange days. So uh, it is always good to compare notes and uh, ground ourselves in the things that we do together, um, uh, which at the moment include building a new home. So uh, that keeps mm. me uh, pretty focused. No doubt it's lovely, though, to have something quite outside politics. And also because he's a, a parliamentarian outside of federal politics, um, it's something that you can shift your attention to, which is nice. It's very nice. Absolutely, it is. And mm. uh, we have very, very different uh, roles, although similar jobs in some way uh, and the differences between our roles mean uh, talking about the others is uh, is a refreshing change from what we've been doing all day uh, but the things that we do outside are important to us. Maurice, you're the highest ranking woman in federal politics in Australia right now and and as such really you're Australia's most prominent female national leader. Is that at times a lonely place? Uh, I don't think it's lonely uh, as such. Uh, I think it is. Uh, uh, I think it is uh, something which uh, a position I'm extraordinarily honoured uh, to to hold. Uh, and I must say, it does come back on come on the back of a long, long parliamentary career. Uh, mm. And I think loneliness. Uh, not so much. The the environment here in Canberra uh, is, um, well, it, it changes. It's quite dynamic. But at the moment, uh, I, uh, I work very closely with uh, a range of my friends and colleagues, with all of my cabinet colleagues. Uh, we are in very regular contact. And what's interesting about that is the way that um, uh, the speed of communication and uh, the facility of communication has changed that. Uh, if I think mm. back to my friends who were cabinet ministers in the Howard government, um, you know, they wouldn't have been in uh, WhatsApp groups, self-evidently. Uh, they wouldn't have been able to uh, constantly communicate with each other or compare notes or ask a question uh, without a, a much more formalised process of, you know, getting your staff to find out if someone's free and whether you can uh, give them a quick mm. call or trying to give them a quick call. That change, I know that makes me sound ancient, mm. um, but that change has been... Don't worry, uh, really I'm just as ancient. I'm just as ancient. <laughs> but look, I wonder though, you know, and I won't... won't go on too much about this, but don't, doesn't it sometimes feel as if there's too much coming at you because of that that incredible uh, accessibility and contact that we now have through technology? Sometimes, most certainly. 
Absolutely. Uh, mm. And uh, you can find yourself, uh, you know, trying to choose um, which particular um, mandarin you might want to buy in the uh, in the greengrocers. <laughs> uh, and uh, six WhatsApps come at you between one mm. box of mandarins and the next, and you think this can't be happening. Yeah. But it is. So, so in a nutshell, though, how do you switch off from all of that? And do you? I mean, do you actually sometimes just put the phone down and say, right, I'm, I'm vegging out for 15 minutes or half an hour? I don't often have the chance to put the phone down, to be absolutely frank. Uh, it doesn't really work that way. It didn't work that way as Defence Minister. doesn't work that way as uh, as Foreign Minister. And I don't have uh, that expectation, uh, really. Uh, but in terms of, uh, of switching off, uh, as I said, in my family, uh, we try really hard to, uh, to do that. Uh, we try to preserve time that is our time. Uh, there are a couple of things that, uh, that we share a passion for. Uh, sport is... Is, uh, is one, uh, and when our teams are playing each other, don't get anyone, don't get in the way. Um, uh, horse racing, interestingly, is uh, is another. Uh, as I said, we're building a new home. Uh, those sorts of things are really good mechanisms mm. uh, for switching off, and we both have very special off. families as well. Want to get a bit of a sense of your your backstory? Um, I know that you entered politics at a very young age. You joined the Liberal Party in 1982, when I think you're probably about 18 or so. But I'm wondering if leadership as such was in your DNA because you have had a very strong career as a leader. You were uh, National Party, uh, the, the National President of Young Liberals by the time you were in your mid-20s and you took on a number of leadership roles. But I just... I want to ask you about that with reference to a few other uh, well, global leaders, one of them being Sam Power, the former US ambassador to the UN. And I, I raise this because she was here yesterday. Uh, she, was here yesterday. she was here last year and uh, spoke at, at ANU. And I thought it was fascinating the way she talked about her background, which had no indication that she would ever end up doing what she did. She was an Irish immigrant. Her father was a hopeless alcoholic. Um, she brought up by a single mum. And People like Madeleine Albright also says she was the most unlikely leader. And, in fact, she goes on to say in her memoir, I wasn't supposed to be, I was never supposed to be what I became. Were you supposed to become a political leader in the way you have? I'm not quite sure about that. Uh, I think I come from a family uh, which has always valued the importance of public service However, that manifests. My father was uh, a World War II soldier, volunteer who uh, signed up to go to uh, the Pacific, and uh, that played a very important role in his attitude to life and his attitude, the attitude that he um, inculcated, conveyed um, to his children, both my brother and uh, and to me. So. That concept has always been a very important part of, uh, of my life. I suspect uh, that if joining the Australian Defence Force had been an option for me as a lawyer, uh, if I'd known it was an option for me, then uh, that, uh, that may ultimately have been a, a path I took. But I didn't know mm-hmm. uh, in, the, uh, in the 1980s that um, you could do that. Uh, that wasn't particularly Well, there weren't many women doing it. There weren't <laughs> many examples. I don't think you know, and you've got to see it to believe it, you know. That's true. And I don't think it was particularly gendered at the time. It just didn't occur to me. The ADF never came to my girls' school in Sydney and, uh, and never – I always wanted to be a lawyer – uh, hmm. I thought. Uh, so I did study uh, law and, I, as you said, I joined the um, the Liberal Party at an early age. My family were very, very strong uh, Liberal voters and so that was, uh, that was part of growing up uh, as well. And uh, the concept of current affairs, uh, I think, bizarrely, maybe one of my favourite subjects towards the end of my school life was general studies. It was nobody else's favourite subject, but I loved... mine too, can I, I say, Maurice, it was mine I loved too. current affairs and I loved uh, the opportunity to talk about those things uh, and uh, and English and French and, uh, and so on. But I think my father passed away before I uh, entered the Senate. Uh, he was certainly uh, still well alive when I was uh, active in, uh, in Young Liberal and Liberal Party politics, and I think he was proud of that. In fact, I'm sure he was. Uh, my mother uh, has also passed away, but she saw me uh, elected to the parliament. And I think she would say it was a, a path she saw me uh, taking. Uh, I didn't become a practicing lawyer uh, for a range of mm. reasons, um, one of which was uh, uh, just a 
a circumstance of a very bad car accident while I was at university, which made me rethink life and uh, rethink life to the extent of saying you should do what you want to do now uh, because sometimes there's no tomorrow. Yes, and I know that uh, very well myself. And it does certainly push you forward. But did did you actually see yourself as a leader? And I'm thinking about... You know, in your twenties, in mid twenties, for example, to take on a you know a national president role of a of a political uh, body is a really big thing to do. So there must have been something within you that made you think, yeah, I can do that. I should do that. I, I'm I'm tough enough, strong enough to do that. Is that is that how you sort of grappled with it, or did you not grapple at all? It was just an obvious thing for you. I I don't think I did grapple with it. I don't think it was uh, it was uh, an issue of of that nature. It was uh, an obvious. Thing thing for uh, for me uh, to do uh, at the time having g- gone through the ranks in uh, in the New South Wales um, Liberal Party uh, uh, which is a um, a fierce training school and uh, and achieved a, a couple of things there it was an obvious thing for me to do and uh, I really enjoyed the opportunity to uh, to take on uh, that role. Um, the Liberal Party, federally at least, was in a very different position then than uh, than it is now, and uh, and certainly we've politics is all about peaks and troughs uh, and uh, the will of the people. But um, it was challenging to choose that uh, that path. I think some of my lecturers at university. Uh, used to look at me and wonder what on earth they uh, they had in front of them, uh, but they coped and I coped, and uh, the rest is history, as they say. Maurice, you've clearly followed your heart at at times. Um, I thought it was really interesting to learn that you were actually vice president of the Australian Republican Movement, and at, at the time you were also an advisor to the Liberal Premier John Fay. I thought it was interesting to. To read just recently that uh, Tony Abbott was very critical of you taking up that role with the Australian Republican movement and actually went as far as saying anyone who doesn't support constitutional monarchy is at odds with the party. In other words, you know, you, you don't fit with this party or you're a traitor. Now, he went on to become prime minister and you went on to serve as a minister <laughs> under him. Now, how do you win back someone... Uh, how do you win them over when when they've already questioned publicly indeed questioned your fundamental values and your beliefs uh, well tony wasn't the only person who did that um that was a uh, a, uh, a an issue of uh, of uh, of great um debate uh, in the Liberal Party in uh, in particular. Uh, and yes, I, I did become Deputy Chair of the Australian Republican Movement uh, under the leadership of Malcolm Turnbull. Uh, so there's uh, lots of, uh, of links and, uh, and, uh, and engagements there. I think, I think if you can show that you can do a good job uh, and you can show that uh, you are capable and uh, and competent, and also able to prosecute a case uh, with uh, without um, reducing it to uh, uh, invective or emotion or conflict, um, then uh, then you can prove that uh, then you prove that you're you're capable. And uh, so I was very grateful to be asked by Tony Abbott to serve in his first ministry in uh, in 2013 as the Minister for Human Services. I must admit, at the time, I thought that was a very big job. Um, Human Services is the second largest employer in the Commonwealth with over 30,000 staff. Uh, there were 350 or 400 physical locations around Australia. It was a department of its own uh, in the outer ministry. So it was a huge task. Uh, I was then particularly honoured to be asked by Malcolm Turnbull to become Defence Minister and uh, if I needed to learn about big jobs, that was a good way to do it. Indeed. But I'm wondering, with reference back to the the role that you played with the Australian Republican movement and the disappointment, no doubt, when Australia (laughs) voted not to to become a republic, but when you do then get into even more senior roles or significant roles of, of power, positions of power, I should say, what do you do with those really heartfelt ambitions? Do you have to just shelve some of them? And, I mean, as I said, you are now indeed the most the most powerful and highest ranked woman in Australia. You could make that an issue if you wanted to, but but you've clearly shelved it. Do you have to do that? Uh, well, I think uh, there's a couple of things about that. Um, I'm not sure that that I've shelved it. Um, I suspect the um, the Australian discourse on on the matter has uh, shifted considerably. I haven't changed my views, not one iota. 
and uh, and I don't intend to. But um, I do think the Australian discourse has uh, has has shifted. I'm a, uh, a financial paid up member of the Australian Republican movement. I hope as long as I've uh, paid my dues, uh, I um, I watch with interest. Uh, their uh, their activities uh, for me it's probably more a function of time uh, than uh, than anything else and the broad range of uh, of other things that um, I have uh, on my plate I think I think it's my I think it's, I'm not sure if it's in my Twitter profile but uh, but it's certainly on everything that uh, that I fill in when I fill in memberships I always uh, Add the Australian Republican movement, um, but uh, when the debate uh, and the discourse uh, comes around uh, again in Australia, then uh, I think you can expect that I'd be part of that conversation. Okay, I want to talk also now about women and leadership. And given that our series here on Broad Talk is specifically on leadership and new leadership, I was very surprised to learn that you actually call yourself a feminist. And I say that um, because. The several of the past uh, ministers for women in your government um, have not called themselves feminists. In fact, refused to. And uh, and of course, when the Prime Minister Tony Abbott was was minister for women, he certainly didn't call himself a feminist. Why do you feel the need to give yourself that that identity? Um, I'm not sure, Virginia. It's about feeling the need to uh, to give myself uh, that identity. Uh, for me, it's just a fact. I think uh, Rebecca oh, West... What does it mean? What does it mean to you when you say it's Well, a I, was just, I was just going to say, I think Rebecca West, uh, if I can paraphrase this, because I don't have the direct quote uh, in front of me, I think she once said, people call me a feminist. This is, And, of course, this is has to be uh, listened to or, or considered in context of the time. Uh, people call me a feminist when I express sentiments that differentiate me from a doormat. Um, and uh, in in the uh, in the time, uh, and some of us, of course, have been watching Mrs. America uh, in uh, mm. in isolation mm. and watching that mm. superb performance by mm. uh, Kate Blanchett and oh, um, Rose Byrne. Uh, they are just superlative, uh, both of them mm. in those uh, in those roles. Mm. And I found that fascinating. Uh, that entire... Does it fire up your sense of feminism watching that? <laughs> by the way, um, well, yes, probably uh, in some ways, but uh, you know, I I know plenty of men who call themselves feminists as well, and uh, mm. for uh, for them, it's uh, uh, it's uh, it's about making sure that gender equality is is in our is in our DNA, uh, and so I don't think you have to have labels. Uh, in fact. Uh, there's lots of labels I wouldn't ascribe to. I want to get on with uh, with my job uh, of pursuing uh, gender equality uh, in Australia, of pursuing gender equality in politics, uh, and pursuing gender equality for for women, particularly who simply are not in a position to advocate or do that for themselves. And I do think the roles that we as parliamentarians hold put us in uh, a position of great privilege and responsibility to, to do that. Sometimes I, I listen to, to women involved in politics, and, and Mrs America has kind of reminded me of this, mm-hmm. sometimes I listen to women in politics who, who say uh, that this is not a focus that is necessary. And I think that if you're elected to parliament, paid a considerable salary to serve the Australian people, probably come to the parliament with a very good education and opportunities uh, to have made a contribution in life, uh, then it's somewhat relatively easier to say that. But if you are a woman who's in a marginalised position, if you are a woman who deals with uh, some of the most vexed challenges in life every day, uh, whether it is um, a a lack of education or poverty or violence uh, or discrimination or disability or whatever it might be, uh, then it's not that easy to say we don't need to do this. Uh, And so Mm. we have a role. Uh, and people who who want to serve in in this context, and everyone will choose their different method of service. By the way, I don't I'm not prescriptive at all, but we have a role uh, in making sure that we are able to advocate and engage uh, for uh, for women in those situations. Maurice, I'm going to ask you a, a tough one uh, on this um, because the conversation is steered towards this, and I, I don't want to get into policy discussions with you, but. I, I sometimes wonder, given what you've just said, I wonder if it hurts that you, as Minister for Women, and as I say, the highest-ranking woman in Australia, if you 
when, when you know that you, you can't do as much as you should do and that you're not doing enough for women and for gender equality, and I'm, I don't mean that personally, but I mean just from in terms of what the government's prepared to, to deliver and what you're able to get through, um, you know, there has been, of course, disquiet, there always is, that not enough is being done to progress gender equality in this country. Does that hurt you? That you, you, you know, you, you, you can't quite push everything through. Uh, I don't think that hurt is the is the word that um, I would use. I think uh, what politics teaches you is that it is about working across a team, working across every portfolio area, every policy area in a government, and. Although I understand what you're saying, I appreciate the the import of your question, there's probably not a ministerial responsibility in a Commonwealth government that can say they are doing um, and are able to do everything that they want to do to deliver for um, their particular portfolio area. So um, whether it's young people, whether it's aged people, whether it's people in rural and regional Australia. Mm. Government is about a team. It's about networks and systems and management uh, and to greater and lesser degrees from time to time compromise. And governments Mm. have to work within certain constructs. Now, in an ideal world, we would all do everything we wanted to do for every single person Mm. that we could. But it doesn't actually work that way in reality. And one thing two decades in politics has taught me, one thing two decades in politics has taught me um, is that that is, that is the reality and mm. you have to learn how to work within that to maximise what you are able to deliver. So the, the message I'm, I'm getting from this, and look, correct me if I'm getting it wrong, but the message I'm getting in terms of what this says about leadership, and there is you know, there's no doubt that you have been an extraordinary leader throughout your career, um, is that you have to be pragmatic and you have to be fairly hard-headed about that pragmatism. Is that right? Pragmatic and hard-headed. Broadly, yes. Uh, And I think that goes for for anyone who is involved in um, the political process and, and in leadership. Virginia, I think in terms of um, pragmatism or hard-headedness, I know that uh, you're very engaged there with the uh, the University of uh, Canberra and I presume the leadership of a university has to be pragmatic and hard-headed in the way they approach doing their business. If you're running a corporation, then you have to be pragmatic and hard-headed. I think it doesn't really matter where it uh, it lands. If you're, if you're idealistic, and that's what you want to be, then I think probably you're you're more of an advocate than a manager, mm. and that's a different role. And mm. there are hundreds of amazing men and women, uh, overwhelmingly in in some of the areas in I work in which I work, women who are incredibly idealistic, uh, committed, passionate, wonderful ad, uh, advocates. I am a passionate. Uh, committed, uh, pragmatic and hard-headed minister. <laughs> okay, I get it, I get it. I, I want to take you back to 2018. Um, you weren't the Minister for Women then. <clears throat> it was a, um, and right back to when the former Prime Minister was heading uh, uh, the table, um, Malcolm Turnbull. 2018 it was a really tough year for y- your government in terms of women in politics and uh, there was almost – we got to a point where there wasn't a day where there wasn't a media headline about the Liberal Party's women problem or woman problem, allegations of sexism, allegations of bullying, uh, s- some of your colleagues speaking out, then withdrawing. We also had the very dramatic um, quitting from uh, Julia Banks who quit the party and quite famously um, – thrashed out or lashed out at at party members in her final speech about bullying, um, gender abuse, etc. 
What was that like for you? Uh, you weren't outspoken at the time, and I'm not aware of you you saying anything in particular uh, in defence of your colleagues, uh, those who spoke out. What was that time like for you? Uh, I think for anyone who is a long-term committed member of a political party, um, seeing it engaged in any sort of trauma and difficulties such as the ones that you've asked me about uh, is very difficult. And uh, you uh, you outed me uh, very early in this uh, conversation as somebody who joined the uh, Liberal Party in 1982. I don't think I'd cracked 18. I think I might have still been 17 at the actual time. And the the trauma of that, no matter how it manifests, uh, I think is very significant for all of us. And that's happened for me a few times over uh, my political and parliamentary career. And of course, we see that playing out right now uh, in Australia in terms of, uh, of what has been uh, discussed in relation to the Victorian Labor Party. This is hard. It's really hard for committed party members who work for a cause uh, and who are passionate and committed and responsible and uh, and uh, only want to see their party in a position of delivering good government to their state or their nation. It's really hard for party members to see that sort of trauma. It is perhaps even more difficult when it is so gendered as it was uh, at that time in 2018. And uh, I know spoke to some of your journalist colleagues in a number of interviews probably in in my in my other roles whether it was as defense minister or as uh, as a foreign minister uh, and did answer some questions on uh, on these issues uh, at the time it's really difficult now we've come a long way uh, since uh, since that and i think it's also important to understand when conflict in within a political party uh, develops in the way uh, that it did then, uh, perhaps in the way it's doing in the Victorian Labor Party at the moment, when contact when conflict develops, then it's never going to be about one thing. Never going to no, be about but one thing. When you say it's really hard, which clearly it is, at what point though is is the obligation on you as as a a, a, a powerful leading female in politics and and one who calls herself a feminist at what point is the obligation to step in speak up uh, make demands uh, at what point does that obligation not occur uh, well I think, I think you're making some assumptions there Virginia about what uh, what uh, occurred in in 2018 and and how people handle things um, it's it's not in my style and has never been to take those sorts of things uh, to you know the second floor of uh, Parliament House and uh, deal with them there. Uh, I have uh, always worked uh, with my colleagues as far as possible. As far as possible, there are probably some exceptions that people will refer to over a 23-so-far-year career in this place, but I've always tried to work within the system and with my colleagues, leaders, counterparts, um, ministerial colleagues, to to resolve uh, issues. And there were hours and hours and hours of discussions amongst colleagues here, amongst leaders here, amongst ministers here, and amongst party organisation leaders as well uh, about these uh, these issues. So I think that addressing them is obviously important. There's no question about that. I want women in Australia, particularly young women in Australia, to think that joining um, a political party and um, I wouldn't say I was agnostic about which party they joined by any means, but (laughs) participation uh, in the political process, more young women uh, who see politics as a a potential career, be it uh, Liberal or National or Labor or Green or whatever it might be, uh, that is a fabulous thing. So we have to be our best possible uh, role model and the best possible person and the best possible system to show that it is a, a job worth doing. So I'm a big advocate for that. But there are ways to address um, some. There are ways to address problems, and uh, and I worked very hard with colleagues uh, at that time. And some of those colleagues have since left the parliament. I know they were also very important uh, in that process. And I think about uh, my friend Kelly O'Dwyer uh, and uh, and others who've been great contributors over the years. 
You and I could talk about this for hours, and I'm very <laughs> tempted to, but I, I want to move it on because I want to get on to the issue of women and leadership style during the COVID pandemic. But we're going to take a short break for a moment. Now, if you're enjoying this episode of Broad Talk, and I'm pleased that you're listening, you're listening to Minister Maurice Payne, who is not only our Minister for Women in Australia, but also our Foreign Minister of Foreign Affairs Minister. We'll be back in just a moment. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to Broad Talk with me, Virginia Hausiger, and Maurice Payne, Senator Maurice Payne, is the Minister for Women and Foreign Minister here in Australia. And as such, she is the highest ranking woman in Australia. And many would say, therefore, the most powerful. We've been having a very wide-ranging chat about uh, her background, women and leadership. But, Maurice, I want to go straight now to women and leadership style during the COVID pandemic, the crisis. There's no doubt that the this extraordinary crisis has also highlighted what perhaps you and I knew very well, which is that that women manage crises very well indeed. But it's interesting to see there have been global media headlines going quite bananas over uh, women leaders as if this is a, a brand new discovery. <laughs> and you know, from 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 one end of the globe to the other, um, uh, news media has been applauding the success of women leaders. Uh, seven or eight nations, in particular, highlighting New Zealand and Jacinda Ardern, highlighting the work done in Germany, in Norway, in Finland, Iceland, Taiwan, uh, Denmark. All nations that have done very well in handling the pandemic. Do you think that uh, the COVID pandemic's given rise to an understanding of a new style of leadership that we're now seeing around the globe? And and if you do, how, how would you characterise that? I think that's an interesting question to to ask here in in Australia. Um, I mean, self evidently, uh, the Prime Minister and his leadership here, and particularly his. Uh, institution of the National Cabinet uh, with the leaders of the states and territories, including, of course, our two female premiers, um, Gladys Berejiklian and, uh, and Premier Palaszczuk. Uh, that has been a leadership that has worked particularly well. And, and I have to say that because I've been part of that and uh, working within that. In terms of uh, the style of leadership that we might be seeing from some of the countries that uh, you've mentioned, could it be uh, that uh, that this is as fundamental as sound, good decision making. Maybe we're even back to your questions earlier about uh, pragmatic approaches to problem solving, and the countries that you've 
suggested there, and I'd include Australia in that, have taken good decision-making to a new height in terms of, of what they've been able to uh, to achieve. So I think whether that is uh, gendered and uh, reflected in that very practical and pragmatic approach, perhaps history will make those, uh, those assessments uh, in some ways. But there's a, st- a statistical issue there as well, though, isn't there, Maurice? I mean, we only have, out of 193 nations, member states of the UN, 180 of them are led by men, so there's only 13 led by women, and at least eight of them are doing better than the rest of the world (laughs) in their handling of the crisis. So on stats alone, it looks like women are doing much better. There's got to be a gendered aspect to that, doesn't there? Uh, Well, they're good figures, uh, there's no doubt, and uh, and I think it is important to to point that out. Uh, And, yes, they're doing a very good job. Now, gendered, you know, they've risen to be the leaders of their countries uh, for a good reason, because they're mm. good leaders, I presume, elected by their peers to uh, to either lead their political party or their nation, but most likely both, depending on each system. Uh, so they're good leaders to start with. And I think that's really important that where those 13 countries, as you say, led by women, eight of them are beating the statistics, uh, where they are doing that they are actually delivering in spades for young women in their countries, looking at them, uh, looking for role models and uh, and looking for uh, perhaps even career paths. I think that's fabulous. And uh, I deal with uh, a number of them, uh, as you can imagine. In Norway, for example, one of the, the countries that you referred to, uh, the foreign minister in Norway, uh, Ina Eriksson Sorjid, and I have been friends for a long time. We were defence ministers together. Now we're foreign ministers together. Uh, mm. And there are warm relationships uh, across so many of these countries. That is something which I have found particularly interesting through covid uh, I have met countless times uh, with women foreign ministers and also with ministers for women in so many countries in a way that did not occur before we were trying to deal uh, with a pandemic. And it is continuing... So, sorry, you mean, you mean the women leaders have rallied together in a way they haven't before? Um, yes, uh, and the opportunity has been presented because, uh, in in many ways, um, our jobs, our roles, or uh, our jobs and, and the way we're able to do them at the moment have have changed, uh, and they have come together in a way that has not been the case before. So, the female foreign ministers, for example, um, and and I've participated now a couple of times, have traditionally met around Unger Week uh, in New York, uh, mm. in uh, in one way and another, uh, but that has been. Uh, other than bilateral engagements, that's been the most substantial uh, engagement. Uh, there are now many more uh, calls and video conferences, WebExes, mm. Zooms, whatever they might be. Mm. Um, I had a fabulous opportunity just a couple of weeks ago uh, to co-convene with the Deputy Prime Minister of Samoa, uh, who is a fabulous Samoan uh, woman leader, Fiame Naomi Mata'afa. I had a chance to convene with her a meeting of 31 Pacific women leaders from parliaments Mm. and from civil service. Amazing, amazing Mm. to have the opportunity to to bring that together. Now, would we have physically been able to do that in the way that we did? I'm not sure necessarily that it would have been that simple to do. What What we have resolved to do out of that in the Pacific is to make sure we are going to launch uh, in-person meetings and encourage uh, this, uh, this with uh, continuity in, uh, in real time, face-to-face. So huge opportunities, ironically, growing out of crisis. It's interesting, isn't it? Because that is happening also um, beyond politics, but in, in uh, research, academic, advocate, uh, and activist uh, circles as well, and women's circles, the same thing I've got to say has happened in that we are coming together and networking, and again via Zoom and, and those sorts of uh, devices in a way that we haven't before, um, looking at the impact of this on women and what we need to do and how we need to respond and what we need to be su- to suggesting to government in, in, in a really, really energetic way that I haven't seen for decades. Uh, it's extraordinary, isn't it? And I, I'm just wondering... You know, it, this is going to sound a bit uh, highfalutin, but is it possible that this this is sort of giving rise to potentially a, a, a whole new way of women's, not necessarily activism, but women's work or or highlighting the value of women's input? I think so. 
I hope so. Uh, and I'd like to uh, to be part of, uh, of ensuring that uh, that is the case. Uh, I know uh, the opportunities that uh, that we have uh, identified here and you're right others uh, in different uh, walks of life have identified this uh, for me as well as a as a, an interesting step change in how we are able to work together mm. uh, I do think that if we can preserve that uh, it would be a really valuable takeout from what has been an extraordinarily difficult time how, how do we do that how, how do we preserve it just keep doing it I mean, it, it's it just keep doing it. We must continue to schedule and to engage. I mean, I know um, there are uh, there are plenty of opportunities that are going to be ahead of us in terms of face to face, person to person meetings, but the facilitation of uh, of uh, multi layered engagements of uh, multiple players in a way that has been so hard to do before. We just have to keep doing it, and I think that will take determination, no question. But and it will take some focus and uh, and planning. But what a great, great opportunity to uh, to continue it. You joined with a, a huge uh, collection of um, women ministers around the world to to jointly sign a very, very powerful letter um, and then wrote an op-ed about it, which was published in um, in The Strategist here in Australia, in, in which you are, are calling on governments to respond better to the needs of women as a result of the pandemic. And you went as far as saying governments and the UN must show leadership. The world's decision makers have an opportunity to make gender equality a top priority. We urge them to rise to the occasion it was very powerful why is it that that call hasn't been heeded i think that we are still in so many places virginia we are still absolutely mid-crisis uh, now uh, as we watch the statistics of covid impact out of uh, parts of uh, of south asia parts of africa uh, out of parts of Latin America, South America, they are very much still struggling with the most up close and challenging aspects of a pandemic. And what we need to make sure we are doing is continuing uh, the uh, the views that were put uh, in that uh, that op-ed that you've, uh, you've you've talked about, we need to make sure they are part of all of our discussions, and that is certainly the case uh, here. When I'm working with my counterparts across the ministry, uh, when the Office of Women is working with uh, with its uh, with various agencies across the uh, the Commonwealth uh, government, uh, making sure that uh, that we are talking about the importance of gender equality. So we had been, before the pandemic, we had been at a, at a point where from a, uh, an Australian perspective, for example, we had the highest level of women's workforce participation that we had ever seen in Australia. Now, there is no question that the economic impact of uh, the pandemic uh, is going to uh, to affect that. No question whatsoever. But our target, our goal, our challenge is to return uh, to that point and then to increase it. Uh, same with the narrowing of uh, the gender pay gap. Uh, same with the fact that we'd met our G20 commitment to reduce that gap in women's workforce participation by 25% by 2025. We, we met that in January 2020. So these challenges are ones which we identify and we know we have to address. They're core business for me. What about the international big, big challenge, though, that you have been outspoken on, and it's a really, really difficult one, which, of course, is the provision of sexual and reproductive health services. We know that the US has really clamped down very hard on this. And again, I go back to that um, extraordinary letter that you and women around the world signed, is calling for better response to that and, and for lifting of bans of supporting sexual and reproductive health services. Are you making any traction on that? Well, we do think that this is important and it has been part of Australia's approach across our development program for many years. Countries will make their own decisions. The United States uh, has most certainly uh, enunciated its concerns. So have other countries, but Australia will... But does it, make you, does it make you cross what the United States has done? 
Uh, no, I, I don't think it makes me cross. Uh, it makes me more focused on what we need to do and how we need to uh, to engage uh, and how we need to continue to articulate why it is so important uh, for, for women uh, and for families to be able to uh, look after their health, uh, their sexual and reproductive health in this context, absolutely fundamental in terms of, uh, of their rights. So uh, we will continue to put Australia's case and we'll continue to work with like-minded uh, counterparts around the world. And there are many who, uh, who have this as a priority in their development uh, programs. And for those who choose not to, I've, I've spoken uh, recently about uh, focusing on Australia's national interests. Well, they are countries that focus on their national interests. Uh, and while I'll continue my advocacy, uh, they will, of course, make their own decisions. Maurice, you've been incredibly generous and we appreciate very, very much the time that you have given us. Uh, it's been a fascinating discussion and we could go on for another hour. Maybe we will some other time, but I want to thank you very much for your um, for the, uh, the time that you have given us today and also the honesty that you've shared. So thank you for joining Broad Talk. Thank you, Virginia. I've really enjoyed the opportunity and best wishes with uh, Broad Talk and best wishes with the work that you do, uh, particularly uh, in your advocacy and uh, your campaigning. It's fabulous to see. Oh, thank you very much. I really, really appreciate that coming from you. All the very best. Thank you. That was Senator Maurice Payne, Minister for Women and Foreign Affairs in the Australian Government. Now, dear listener, if you've stuck with us this far, what did you think? If you'd like to share your thoughts about our discussion or some of the issues raised, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Virginia underscore House, H-A-U-S-S, or join our chat group on Facebook and pull up a seat at the Broad Talk Roundtable at facebook.com slash groups slash broadtalk, all one word. Or just send me an email, virginia at virginiahausiger.com.au. Join me again next week for episode two in our series on new leadership when I'll be chatting with Dame Annette King. She's New Zealand's longest-serving female MP and currently serving as the High Commissioner to Australia. Until then, Broadies, let's keep talking. Happy chat. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.